0: Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Grace, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we're closing out our coverage of Star Trek Las Vegas 2018. The con floor is officially closed. Sad days. But we've got our coverage to celebrate. As a reminder, we're giving away an Eagle Moss 10-inch XL Voyager replica. To enter this giveaway, just send us an email to crew at, women at with the subject Voyager and tell us. Let us know if you can scour your mind for the answer. Just what was Captain Janeway famously looking for in that nebula? Entries will remain open through September 4th, so you have until then to try and rack your brain. In this episode, you'll first hear the recording from the Shakespeare and Trek panel from Friday afternoon led by Brooke Wilkins and featuring myself, Annika Dane, Amy Amhoff, and Mary Chifo. Then, a brief interview that Annika conducted with Nicole DeBoer at her table in the vendor's room. And finally, my chat with J.K. Woodward about his work on with IDW for the TNG Mirror Broken comic series.
1: All right, guys. We are about to start our next panel, which is Shakespeare and the Trekverse with... Mary Chifo of Star Trek Discovery, Amy Imhoff, Annika Dane, Brooke Wilkins, and Grace Moore. Why don't you guys come on out?
2: our technology story. Yeah, where's the, head, the, the, the is the
3: where's the crown? Yeah, yeah, thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> I knew the beginning and the end. Of that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so rhythmic, I find that. Yep, yeah, Shakespeare <laughs> rhythmic? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. Um, welcome to the Shakespeare and Star Trek panel. Um, we will do brief introductions and shall we start at the end there with our, our friend Grace? Shall we? Yes. Mm-hmm. Shall we? Hi, I'm Grace Moore.
0: I'm one of the hosts and co-founders of Women at Warp. Yes, I'm the loud one. That got applause, really? (laughs) Oh, yeah.
4: Well, give it up for me. Hi, I'm Annika Dane, and I'm a contributor for Women at Warp. And um, I just want to say that I saw Star Trek for the first time as a stage production of Balance of Terror at Wesleyan University, where my father uh, taught. And so I I just think that that's relevant to this panel. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Hi, I'm Amy Imhoff. I am also a contributor to Women at Warp, but I also run um, Shoes in Starships, which is my blog. And I write for Legion of Leia, the Mary Sue. And I do a lot of these panels. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm Mary Chifo. I play Laurel on Star Trek Discovery. Newly appointed Chancellor of the Klingon Empire. (laughs) Yeah, appointed. (laughs) Self-appointed. Yeah, self-appointed.
1: We may talk about that in
2: a little bit. (laughs) Um, I'm Brooke Wilkins. I am moderating the panel today.
5: Um, And you're an awesome actress. (laughs) Oh, well. Brooke should talk herself up and cosplayer. No, we'll talk about that later. (laughs)
2: Okay, so to start off our panel today, we wanted to do something that was a little bit fun and a little bit uh, hopefully quick-witted and will be a lively discussion. So we got some questions from uh, the social medias before the panel um, f- from uh, from you guys about the the i can't english today yeah. um, <laughs> it's all about shakespeare and so, <laughs> uh, and so hard. Yeah. about this crossover between shakespeare and star trek so we're going to mm-hmm. start off uh with a duel or i guess we should call it a melee since we've got four duelists. Yeah. Yeah. so it's a melee um we will just ask these short questions and uh get brief answers yeah. and you the audience in your own little minds get to choose who's the winner um so well, this question comes from uh, William Bell off of the official Star Trek convention uh, page on Fakebook. Um, <laughs> let's see. It's, complete this sentence with a Star Trek reference. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this blank. So, please, we, we'll, 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 uh, we'll go, no. go down and back the, the panel. So, yes. So, Mary, please.
3: So, I was thinking... Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this bar of quarks. <laughs> Which you can uh, meet me at it from six to seven tonight with Kenneth Mitchell.
5: I'm going to go for the classic Oy response. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this coffee in that nebula. <laughs> Now is the
4: winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this tower of tribbles.
0: (laughs) Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this collectible plate that broke in
2: my bag on the way home. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next question, and we'll start, uh, Grace, with you. Which Star Trek characters would make the best? Oh, I need to tell you, this question is from Landon Weckerly um, in the Deep Space Nine fan club page on Facebook. Um, which Star Trek characters would make the best Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth? I can't believe I just said that in a theater.
4: <laughs> it's OK. It's really a hotel.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's, okay. it's a, it's a I'm hotel: on a stage. With a stage. Rio.: I'm on a <laughs> stage.
0: I want to say uh, Worf and Kalar, just because it's such a great example of competency versus bravado that you see with Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and uh, Worf and Kalar. But that feels like an obvious choice to me. So I want to say like Barclay and H- Barclay's holodeck version of himself. <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right, so I wanted to go with um, giving the woman more to do. So I chose uh, Harry Mudd and Stella Mudd. I would really love to see Stella Mudd in that role. (coughs) It would be nice to see her do something.
5: I decided on a little Deep Space Nine situation and I picked Martok and the Intendant. Ooh. Ooh. Saucy. (laughs) I think she'd be a really good lady (laughs) like that.
3: (laughs) Um, well, what's interesting about this question is that actually when Discovery started airing and episode four aired, Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, that very short title of an episode, (laughs) um, a lot of people actually started saying, hey, like, Laurel, is she kind of like a Lady M to Vokes M? And, uh, I just found that really interesting because, um, I did a production of the Scottish play. It was my, uh, final show, um. In college, it was an all-female production. I actually played the man himself, um, but our director Erica Schmidt's interpretation of Lady M was that all she wanted was to um, support her husband. That they had like the greatest, one of the greatest loves in Shakespeare, and that they had lost this child, and this was this crown was their way of healing. Um, so with that interpretation, I kind of liked that people were seeing that in Laurel, But I think so often we we have portrayed Lady M as someone who's Seeking a certain sort of gain uh, in a, in a in an evil way, and so yeah, those are just my little Mackers' thoughts.
2: Mackers gotta <laughs> love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, which Shakespeare play would make the best Klingon opera, and why?
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna it's jump in. It's
2: your turn. <laughs> it's your turn. Go for it.
3: Okay, so. Uh, My instinct, actually, I was just in the the green room with some of the disco people, including Rain Wilson, and I said, I'm off to my Shakespeare panel, and I said, this was one of the questions, and I said, I'm thinking Titus Andronicus, (laughs) which, because that play is insane. The
5: bloodiest (laughs) play in all of Shakespeare.
3: um, But then he dropped this awesome fact that he was in a production of Titus Andronicus with Kate Mulgrew. Oh wow! What? Right after he got out of college in New York, I think it's Shakespeare in the Park, wow. 1987. I think he said. But how cool is that? That <laughs> I found like <laughs> out cool. moments before I came <laughs> on this panel. Um, but I do, I do genuinely think that uh, Titus Andronicus would definitely be up there. Yeah, because I mean, the, yeah. the cannibalism.
5: Yeah, yeah yeah oh, yeah, yeah. oh, that
2: little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
5: Uh-huh. <laughs> and the the, the, the hands and thing. And the Yeah, just uh-huh. that play is crazy. <laughs> I, I found this answer to be difficult because I have had the Immense pleasure of seeing Patrick Stewart as Macbeth, Avery Brooks as King Lear, and Kate Mulgrew as Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. All all on the East Coast in, in various Lucky performances. Lucky I know. Um, but I think I'm going to go with none of those and pick The Tempest. As a I Klingon opera? As a Klingon mm. opera. Because I feel like it has the scope that you kind of need okay. as, as a Klingon warrior. There's no war and there's in like The trickery. Tempest. there's
2: oh, trickery. There is trickery. That seems more Romulan.
5: It does okay, I shouldn't more debate run. you, it's a duel. Deba- <laughs> okay. You can debate me, but I, I thought that that would be a, because it, it's an opera. Yeah. So you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it lends itself well to that format. I love The Tempest. Annika. Okay. So I chose
4: um, Henry V because mm. the St. Crispin's Day speech, the short version of that is, today is a good day to die. <laughs> 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 that's right! That's great, that's
0: great, yeah. The sensible, honest part of me really wants to say just the entire Iron Crown uh, thing. All the histories would make for incredible Klingon work. You know they would love it and have fun with it. But the contrarian in me really wants to see them do like measure for measure or something (laughs) and make it super violent and just see how far they
2: can get from the original material to what will be acceptable for Klingons. (laughs) That's a good answer. Um, by the way, I didn't mention that was uh, from John Lowery on the Deep Space Nine fan club group in Fakebook. Um, okay, Grace, next question. Uh, where are we? Oh, yeah. If Star Trek did Othello, which... And, and this is from Michelle Hoffman, Michelle Mann Hoffman, also on Fakebook. Um, if if Star Trek did Othello, which Trek characters would be best cast in the title role? And we're not limiting this to just guys. We're starting with me? Grace, yes. Grace. <laughs> That's a really
0: good question and I have to face the fact that my first thought was, oh, Cisco, you get to see him have some betrayals and a bunch of changeovers emotionally with how he um, how he morally aligns himself. But then I realized, am I also saying that because Othello is one of the only uh, black Shakespeare characters and Cisco was the first main black character that Star Trek had. So I really had to step back and ask myself how much of an influence that was. But I do think we get just about, uh, what am I trying to say? I This is going to sound ridiculous, but I kind of thought for a second, oh, well, Chakotay switches sides. That could be interesting. It's like, Ugh. But then I realized I just kind of wanted to see Robert Pilchman do some of those monologues because I'm a doofus like this.
4: Um, I would choose Worf mm-hmm. because he can be the, uh, the romantic lead. Um and he, like, is so, he deals with a lot of Klingon drama-rama. And I feel like that would um, lend itself to the role. That he, w- he could bring that sort of, like, grounded but also emo version. Um, and, I, and I would just like to see him stretch Like reasonably there. emo? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> reasonably but that, emo. But that means he kills Jadzia, and that just makes me sad. Well... <laughs> I don't know okay. what to
4: tell you. <laughs> well, it's it's the play. <laughs> it's, the
3: play. I, <laughs> it's in the script. I will. I, I will. I, obviously, we'll get. But because Worf was also my selection, and <laughs> I felt that part because his li- the, the the tragedy in his life with love. I mean, you see it with Kalar. You see it with Dazia. Like I, even though it's hopefully not brought by jealousy. In both of those cases, he was he was not overcome with jealousy. But I think so much of the otherness as well, because I think that that mm. Othello is so much about the other and the way in which, I, I did <laughs> I did an all-female production of that play, too, where I played Iago, um, which was really fun. Uh, but what I really, I fell in love with the play because I think it speaks to the fragility of one's soul. Like, everyone's like, why does? I thought you were
5: gonna say of men.
3: Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> but the way in which, um, I felt as Iago. I didn't even realize how easily I was going to break Othello. Like when he starts to fall into the madness, it's like, whoa! I didn't realize that he, because to me, Othello has built himself up um, for so long, and he is, you know, he's so eloquent. Like his speech is the way they're written, the way it's rhythmic. Like you see someone who has worked so hard to prove that he is good, and because there are people that are ripe to judge him based on how he looks, and I feel like Worf also deals so much with that being the first Klingon in Starfleet, and um, that sort of turmoil, um, I think, is, is something that could lend itself, um, and yeah, I, think, I just think Othello's a brilliant play about systemic racism and how it's, it's, it's so um, infectious and vicious and affects everyone,
5: so, yeah, brilliant. I was also going to go for a Klingon, but not the obvious choice. I was going to say B'lana. Ooh. Because that makes her, that makes Tom Paris Ophelia. Or not, not, <laughs> not Ophelia, Des, Desdemona. 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 Uh, sorry, not, not Ophelia.
0: Desda Tom Paris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
5: But I, I feel like she has that like capacity in her, you know, mm-hmm. to be that angry, to stab him.
3: And he is very Spoiler. pretty. And he is and very pretty, yes. He's beautiful. <laughs> like you
5: said. So yeah, I think I think the that kind of will launch us into our next question, won't it? Um, the, the one about
2: uh, Shakespeare's words or the the original Klingon. Original Klingon. Okay, we'll do that one. Um, oh, I need to scroll down here. Okay. So, one has not experienced Shakespeare until he's read him and experienced him in the original Klingon. We all know this. Um, so why, and this this question comes from uh, Marina Kravchuk, um, also on Facebook. and I hope I Is said her name correct, her last name correctly. <laughs> She's a good friend of mine, and I, I only read her name, and I don't say it very often. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, wha- so here's the question. Why do Klingons of all the species lend themselves so well to Shakespeare's words? Mm-hmm. So Mary, we'll start with yeah. you. <laughs> because, uh, um, okay, I just... I, uh, you speak Klingon better than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
3: I was it's gonna true. say tach par tach to be or not to be. <laughs> Ooh. I, that's all I've memorized of that speech. <laughs> I do have it. I have I have the uh, Hamlet in Klingon, and one day I'll fully bust it out. Maybe on the cruise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do the, the full, we got some ticket yeah, holders. Full speech. Yeah, I do the full speech. That's yeah. But I do find. Um, that breaking down uh, Klingon, I've had to lend all of my technique in breaking down Shakespeare, um, but we can touch on that later. When no, it comes, no, talk to about it now. Okay, <laughs> no, talk about it. Well, uh, I really do. Um, I mean, it's so much about sentence structure. And while Shakespeare is a little bit closer to what we know, there's still so much of you know subject-object-verb noun relationships that are slightly different. And so, so often when I'm breaking down Shakespeare, you have to really take it apart and then be like oh that's where I want to inflect or that's the, the key word um, that you want to hit to help the audience understand what's going on. Now with Klingon I obviously knew that there were going to be subtitles and that, they weren't, that there were a handful of amazing people that would know what I was saying um, so I wanted to definitely do them service but um, certainly for me in finding the fluidity of the language. Um, Cause that's what I love about Shakespeare. It's like in the thick of it, it's clunky and you're trying to memorize it and certain things aren't hitting and how you lift the line. But once you get in the rhythm of it, then it's, um, it just smooth sailing. So I felt that same relationship with the Klingon and Rhea Nolan, who's our incredible dialect coach, works and sh- she's just amazing. And we have these two hour sessions where we just go sentence by sentence and, and um, find the rhythm. Um, And it is rhythmic. I will say Klingon has a great rhythm to it. And so often I wish the audience could read the translation that Robin Stewart has written because they do have an elevated way of speaking um, that you don't see in the subtitles, which then makes me be like with any foreign language film, I'm like, oh, I'm really not hearing the beauty of the words. Like writing subtitles is an art form. Translations are a true art form. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see there's like, which is actually a line that got cut. But I say that to Vogue in the fourth episode, I say to conquer compromise. That's the literal translation. Oh wow! Can you say it again in Klingon? It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, but the, the English translation was, uh, um, you must use compromise to conquer. But I love the to conquer, compromise. So things like that. That's yeah. far more Shakespearean, I yeah. feel. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. exactly. The,
5: the sentence structure.
3: And I have found that they, they do write a lot of my English stuff in a certain heightened way. It's not exactly Shakespeare, yeah. but there are a lot of different uh, vocabulary words that I've learned. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I had to say taciturn. And I was like, whoa, okay. I kept, <laughs> well, yeah, that's all. That's an anecdote I'll tell later. <laughs> <laughs> but I kept saying words like taciturn, but not taciturn. I being like, he's always been a tr- tr- turtle. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but Klingon, why, on a thematic level, why I think uh, Shakespeare and uh, Klingon culture mesh so well, and I've certainly experienced that in the story that I've told in, the first season and what we're continuing to tell in the second season is that these are very heightened epic creatures and um, the emotion is so present and I find that with Shakespeare's words, um, the vowels and the consonants teach you about the feelings that you have. It's so much about, certainly as an audience, witnessing someone experience emotion, experiencing emotion through their words. All they had in Shakespeare's day was the words. They didn't have all the visual effects that we now, so, I mean, they're awesome, but they didn't have that then. It was so much about conveying everything through the sounds. And I just think that Klingons are a very visceral species and uh, and very Greek. And, you know, Shakespeare was looking at the Greek plays and making them his own. I mean, he was the, I say he's a great writer, but he's really a brilliant adapter, you know? He was looking He's at... He just yep. stole his stories from other yeah. people. Which makes me be like, well, I'm, yeah. Like, I, if I adapt um, a Shakespeare play, it's like, all right, well, I'm just doing what he did with the Greek plays. Because I, now I'm saying I'm Shakespeare. That's not... <laughs> 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 but uh, I think that, yeah, and I really f- uh, found that they are continuing to capitalize that. That's my little tease for season two, is that I, when I got a certain script that you'll know what I'm talking about when you see it, I was like, well, that's okay. This is this is Shakespeare, oh, you know? I'm so, so, that's my little tease. I'm very excited. That is a tease. That is a tease. Damn. <laughs> okay. Soon, soon as Laurel would say.
5: Soon. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to follow that. Uh, uh, I think the reason it's adapted so well is because. Um, Klingons are so based in ritual. Like everything is steeped mm-hmm. in ritual. You know, the courtship mm-hmm. is steeped in ritual. You know, kind of the ways that, like, you see the trials that Dax has to go through before she's accepted into a Worf's house. On, mm-hmm. the, on, um, mm-hmm. when they get married, and you have to see, you know, even just the the ceremonial, like when Worf is like getting the pain, the pain sticks, oh is yeah, mm-hmm. stabbed. You know, it's, everything is is super saturated in this is how we do it. Even, like, Stovacor in the afterlife and when they scream when someone dies, you know, it, to announce that he's coming to Stovacor, it's like, I, I just, I love that. And I find, I find that that's very similar to kind of the rituals of, like, the courts of England. You know, they had all these courtship rituals and they had... Um, rituals surrounding when a king dies, or you know, when, when a war, mm-hmm. you know, when a warrior dies, and I thought that's why it's so. That's why I think when they were creating Klingons, really for for TNG, and then even more so in Deep Space Nine, because Deep Space Nine has just got so many great Klingon characters, mm-hmm. yeah. And really, the first time we kind of examine the full aspect of like the wedding ritual and all that. So I think that the that's why. It really it lends itself to this this examination from a Shakespearean standpoint. Okay, thank you, Amy. Annika,
4: I was going to say ritual as well, so I will go <laughs> on a different tangent. <laughs> and you have to come up with something new, or else you lose the melee. Yeah. And uh, and I'll say that um, it's uh, their passion um, that Klingons are very physical, and mm. they're very grounded in in a reality, and um, like you know. Vulcans are so intellectual, and humans even are very like—they're always going somewhere. They're always uh, going from one thing and 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 floating around. Whereas Klingons are really like grounded in what they're doing because of the ritual. So you're and saying
2: humans are fairies? Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and and so, like you know, humans do, like like yeah, because Puck. Like humans are puck, like they're always just running around messing things up. Where <laughs> <laughs>
3: Tell me about the it.
4: Klingons, <laughs> are like you know, they want to build something and uh, and make it this uh, this you know they want to leave their mark everywhere they go, which like is a conqueror, but it's also this this very you know passionate. Uh, we want to bring something to to everywhere, um, and I think that Shakespeare would you know he wrote for everyone, um, and really tried to like, show different levels of humanity, um, and so he was... And, and that's why he's... Klingonity. Klingonity. Yeah, Klingonity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Klingonity. Um, Klingonity. So, so no. I just think that it's this, this passion like and this Klingonity. groundedness and this, you know, conquering kind of uh, thing that, that Shakespeare captures and the, and the Klingons embody.
5: Okay. Grace? Gravitas. Gravitas. Gravitas.
0: I think that one of the things that really comes across about the Klingon culture is that your words have no meaning unless you put that meaning behind your words. And I think that that's that's the same with a lot of Shakespeare in the fact that it has aged, (laughs) definitely, and there is still a point where there's a lot of it and... um, it's one thing to hear, now is the winter of our discontent, my glorious summer, versus now is the winter of our discontent. And the, the Klingons are all about putting the force behind their words and meaning 200% of everything you say. Mm-hmm. And I think I once heard John DeLancey say that the key to good uh, intense Shakespeare performance is half as loud and twice as fast.
2: I thought it was being tall, but
5: <laughs> that couldn't hurt, really. I think I also, yes, yeah, speaking to that and, and, ter- and having, you know, asked, I've, I've taught writing to college students. We have not read Shakespeare together, but, you know, asking them what their thoughts are of reading it versus if anyone had seen it performed. Shakespeare's not meant to be read, really. Mm-hmm. It's meant mm-hmm. to be seen and experienced, and I think that's very Klingon. Yeah, I think the yeah, Don't read would-
2: Klingon. Don't read it. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> have someone read it aloud to you. Yeah. I will also tease outside of track. I have something in, in that regard because I have such a strong mm-hmm. belief about um, bringing, bringing Shakespeare to kids in a way that makes them go, oh, I want to go and look at the text now. So hopefully soon I'll be able to talk about it, but I can't talk about it yet. But uh, <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> but I really think that that's the key to... to enlightening people about what's fun about it because if you do have the people that do have the tools to bring it to life then it inspires others to dive into it
2: one of my favorite projects is working at the children's theater on their shakespeare festival we need to talk yeah okay (laughs) my favorite
0: is reading teenagers through titus Andronicus and then seeing them react when they get to villain i hast undone thy mother yes yes
3: (laughs) because yeah exactly there's so many moments
5: we're like oh
0: it's like (laughs) modern melodrama it is an oh snap moment. Yeah, <laughs>
5: it was Game really of realize? Thrones before Game of Thrones.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. that concludes our melee. So, a round of applause for our <laughs> combatants, our warriors. And um, we will we will now move into the next section of our uh, our little panel. Amy is going to take it
5: over. Just for a few minutes. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the way um, Shakespeare uses wild spaces and the forest and, like, the tempest, the beach, the island, um, and kind of the way that Shakespeare uses those spaces, or Shakespeare Star Trek uses those spaces when they go on an away mission and they leave the structure of the ship and they leave the structure of Starfleet. You know, when they go down to that planet and they... Weird things happen, you know? It's strange, and they the crew members can sometimes behave in ways that they normally would not on the ship, just like in... Midsummer Night's Dream, when they leave the city and they go mm-hmm. out into the forest and the fairies start to have this effect on them, you know, it's it's a very, uh, you know, the holodeck can also be a very, a very big part of that, you know, you don't have to leave the ship necessarily, but you go into a space that's not meant to be structured, and it's very uh, interesting to examine it from, you know, not only the literary point of view, but also, you know, as a viewer and like a consumer of media, and you see, you um, you get, it's enjoyable because for the actors, I'm sure you get to, like, play, right? Mm-hmm. You get to play in the, you know, you're out in the field, you're on a location maybe, shooting. You know, you you'll, you get to, you know, be someone else, much like in As You Like It or, you know, Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. You know, you have yeah. women pretending to be men and pretending to not be kings or nobles. They're mm-hmm. pretending to be common folks, and it's... Uh, you you're not really necessarily a starship captain anymore. You're you're just a person and these things are happening to you. You know, mm-hmm. the structure is kind of abandoned. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know if anyone else wanted to weigh in on what you thought that would be a really good example.
0: Well, for one thing, I love that that's such a great um, extension of the one of the most... Compressed versions of a story that can be told as man versus man, man versus nature, Mm -hmm. man versus himself. And that's an extension of kind of man versus nature, mankind versus the unknown, which Star Trek is such uh, such an ode to such an ode to going out and finding not necessarily the unconquered spaces, but the places we don't understand and trying to learn from them. And I also love that we ha- so literally have that as an episode in Discovery. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so I think that uh, y- you're absolutely right about um, the away missions versus the regular missions, but it's also like Star Trek in general is the idea of going out into the unknown, especially mm-hmm. um, like Enterprise and Voyager because they're completely in in this uh, totally unknown place. Like. TOS and Next Generation um, and even Discovery, they sort of have, they know where they are in space but um, Enterprise and Voyager, they're in a completely new place and they have to build a new reality mm-hmm. and uh, and they deal with all of these strange encounters um, and it particularly like, Comedy of Errors is, is one that I really enjoy because um, there's all, like, the whole thing is about mistaken identity, and I think that it, it was never in Star Trek, but I would love there to be, like, an episode where um, the aliens, like, can't differentiate between any humans, and so they would just think all of the humans were the same person, and uh-huh. <laughs> and I just, and it's, like, this idea of... Um, and again, it's you know, enterprise is the, is the most for this. But you know, going somewhere and, and meeting someone that you've never seen before, and how do you deal with that culture? And I'm sure that there are so many mistakes made um, mm-hmm. every time. And uh, and and Starfleet isn't there as a net all the time.
5: And one of the episodes I really like that is they're still on a ship, but they're they're elsewhere. Um, the body and soul in Voyager when the doctor is kind of inhabiting 709, Via her, her implants and um, like you said, mistaken identity people who are mm. acting and being who, someone that they're not. And I think Jerry did such an amazing job with that. You know, she's she's like very physical. She really takes on mm-hmm. Bob Picardo's like <laughs> mannerisms and his way of speaking, kind of quickly. <laughs> and he's like, you know, just a little worked up. <laughs> she has a few episodes
0: like that where she is multiple people inside Seven's yeah. body, and mm-hmm.
5: she she knows how to have fun with that. Yeah, I think I I love that they like let. Jerry branch out and do that because not a lot of the women did not really get to to necessarily branch out in those kind of comedic ways. You said you wanted to answer. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I
3: one thought in regards to Shakespeare is I totally agree with the sort of and I say like the into the woods, like why did Sondheim make that is that that is the we they all of these characters end up finding themselves in the woods. Um but Coming back to Othello, because that's, you know, one of the plays that I know quite well, I found also they are in um, Cyprus. Um, they are in a, a foreign place, and in that case, um, they were supposed to go and be at war, but then there's no war because the sh- those ships of the, the ships of the enemies got um, swept away by the storm. So I think there's also this theme of, like, when you're in a foreign place and you're not doing what you were supposed to be doing. And I think this this is a bit of a t- slight tangent in the sense that I think that there are lots of, lots of themes when it, in regards to like PTSD and uh, soldiers, men who have experienced violence, Titus Andronicus is another great example, people that, which is also coming from war and then how violence um, continues to snowball and, and infect us all even after the fact, like people that are you know, desensitized and taught how to kill. How do you move through that? But anyway, that's the side note. Um, but yeah, I, I feel yeah. I, I when it, in regards to track, I mean, I definitely re- responded to the whole Pavo yeah. uh, episode I with really Disco. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, that that whole idea of um, and and I think ceru in general is like one of those characters that, mm. particularly since he's an alien, that we haven't experienced yet in in canon. Um, there's so much explored about his journey being other like Laurel has her own journey of being other but Saru is already trying to be integrated within yeah. he's the like trying to be
5: he's like Odo almost you know mm-hmm. kind of trying to be like the humans yeah you know, like like he's trying to function within the structure of Starfleet but also as this person who's in races a slave race
3: yeah, yeah, you know, and
5: it's 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 like very. I I I really enjoy his mm-hmm. his backstory and the the new the new alien type concept that that we're getting from him. Mm-hmm. I think we have a cool next section. Okay, we <laughs> we're ready for our next section. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, I, so, um, Shakespeare, <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> we're going to move to a little bit more, I, I don't know. Anyway, Shakespeare was a master of rhetoric, which is um, not a common word around, we, you know, we talk about a rhetorical question and people think that means a question you don't want an answer to. But rhetoric, rhetoric is about the art of persuasion. And when you're writing a script and performing a script, you're on stage and you're trying to persuade the audience to something. And Shakespeare was a master at rhetoric. Now, there are three methods of uh, persuasion that Shakespeare was schooled in. Logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos <laughs> is logic. That kind of makes sense to us. Now, uh, pathos, it's kind of emotional um, uh, forms of argumentation and persuasion. I, and I want to read what I wrote last night so that I can say it more clearly, because mm-hmm. speaking extempore is not my s- strong point. I like scripts <laughs> better. Um, so uh, pathos, it's its trying to put your listeners into whatever frame of mind is favorable to, to, the, to the speaker's purpose. Um, and then ethos is trying to persuade the minds and hearts of the audience uh, by the the personal character of the speaker, uh, causing your audience to believe in your sincerity, your truth, your ability, your goodwill, or whatever. Um, so an easy way to think... So so that's your little brief course in in A good in example rhetoric. of that
5: last one is like you know, William Wallace and, you know, the rallying the troops kind of a, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of a speech that a lot of people know.
2: And so the easy way for Trekkies to remember Logos, Pathos, and Ethos is that they are represented by Kirk, Bones, and Spock. Kirk is logical. Bones is emotional. And, Spock is logical. Spock is logical. (laughs) Kirk can be logical because... Because the way it works in, in rhetoric is, is logos and pathos work together to create ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so um, you, you would see uh, Spock and Kirk battling it out, uh, Spock and Bones kind of battling it out. And then Kirk would kind of make a choice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he was using both of their, their methods of persuasion. So we have a speech most likely written by Shakespeare um, that we <laughs> are going to read as Kirk, Spock, and Bones. Um, now, uh, what? how much time do we have? Because we've got a costume change.
5: 11
2: minutes. Oh, all right. We can do the costume change. <laughs> we, 7 minutes. We're, costumes? Or maybe just <laughs> let's, let's skip the
3: costumes. We'll do a fashion show after.
2: <laughs> no, no costumes. I'm a costumer. I always want to use costumes. costumes. <laughs> Oh, oh, we're right, gonna skip them, yeah. and then pass that down, so you can know who's who Hello. and what's what. So, I get to be Kirk. <laughs> um, we're gonna pull it up here. So, this uh, just a little bit of background on on this speech. Um, it's uh, from the play Sir Thomas More. The character speaking is. Uh, Thomas More, at this point he is trying to calm down a mob of angry Englishmen who are intent on burning and killing in the neighborhood of some foreigners that happen to live in London. Um, And they really want to cause destruction and violence. And uh, uh, Thomas More and a few other nobles are trying to calm the mob down. And so this speech is trying to persuade an angry mob. It's also Trying to persuade the audience there in the globe. Right. So now, we've split it up, and I guess we'll just go for it. Do we need yeah. any more introduction? I mean, yeah. No, we got it. We're ready we're to going. go. And okay. we're going
3: for the the, sen- the sentiment, not the impersonation. Yes. yes. <laughs> we're,
2: we're not we're not um, Shatnering or Nimoying or yeah. anything. We're, we're we're trying to just emphasize that when yeah. I'm speaking, I'm I'm. Yeah. Is yeah. that clear? Got it. Also, we have not rehearsed this. So you're seeing the f- first rehearsal. <laughs> Much like Shakespeare's time. <laughs> what so is the play and what is my part?
3: Sorry, it's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite line in Shakespeare in Love. Well, <laughs> 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 oh, that's right, is that bottom? No, it's Affleck. Yeah, Ben Affleck in Shakespeare in oh, Love. What is oh, the oh play and is love? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah,
2: he is bottom it's though. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, are okay. we ready? Okay. We're ready.
4: Grantham removed. And grant that this your noise hath chid down all the majesty of
3: England. Imagine that you see the wretched strangers, their babies at their backs and their poor language, plotting tooth ports and costs for
2: transportation. And that you sit as kings in your desires, authority quite silent by your brawl. And you, in rough of your opinions clothed, what had you got? I'll tell you. You
4: had taught how insolence and strong hand should prevail, how order should be quelled, And by this pattern, not one of you should live an aged man, nor for other ruffians, as their fancies wrought, with self-same hand, self-reasons, and self-right.
3: Would shark on you, and men like ravenous fishes would feed on one another.
4: Let me set up before your thoughts, good friends, on supposition, which if you will mark... You shall perceive how horrible a shape your innovation bears.
2: You'll put down strangers, kill them, cut their throats, possess their houses, and lead the majesty of law in line to slip him like a hound? Say now, the king,
3: should so much come too short of your great trespass as but to banish you, whether would you go? What country, by the nature of your errors, should should give you harbor? Go you to France or Flanders, to any German province, to Spain or Portugal, nay, anywhere that not adheres to England. Why, you must needs be strangers. Would you be pleased to find a nation of such barbarous temper that breaking out in hideous violence would not afford you an abode on earth, wet their detested knives against your throats, spurn you like dogs, and like as if that god owed not nor made not you Nor that the claimants were not all appropriate to to your comforts, but chartered unto them. What would you think to be thus used? This
2: is the stranger's case, and this your mountainish inhumanity. For a first rehearsal, that was awesome. Maybe we can do it better
3: next (laughs) year. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I'm really—I was not aware of this speech, and it's—I mean, I mean,
2: it's so topical. Topical, my God. Yeah. (laughs)
3: Yeah. (laughs) It's yeah. I mean, looking over it, it's exactly. Let's all pay attention. The rest of the
2: play is not that great. Yeah. It was a comedy. (laughs) This is the high point. It was a combination with Shakespeare, probably, and some others, but this is a good speech.
3: Yeah. Well, I find that, like with Pericles as well, there's like I really feel like he did the latter
2: half. It was like it all oh, got yeah. set up, and uh-huh. then you're like, oh, and now the plot's getting really. And oh. It's, it's like you hit the third season yeah. of the Next Generation. Yes. Oh, <laughs> now <laughs> it's good. <I laughs> oh. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shakespeare <laughs> and Trek. There you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, th- I think we might have time for one or two questions if anybody
5: has any. Let's say two. Come on up. Come on. Come on down. How How are you? Good. How are you? All right. So my question, uh, seeing as though everybody seems to be a fan of Othello, (laughs) there seems to be an
0: idea that Iago is a villain without a base or a foundation. Do you agree? And if you don't, what Star Trek character would you compare him to? Mm -hmm.
3: I I I feel like you have to answer Yeah, I has to answer So what I really found in working on uh, the the production of Othello I did, I was very good friends with the um, woman who was playing Desdemona. And so anytime we had a moment together, we just like ate it up. And I... um, I found that there was a genuine affection that Iago had for Desdemona, and that he actually did not want her to be killed. That, that like I was saying, he did not realize, that was not his end goal. He is bitter, I felt, he's, a, he's an adolescent boy, whether he's a, a played by a woman or a man, there is, a, there is a, 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 f- a fire in him, he is, and I think so often we see Iago as a snake, and I just don't believe that to be true because looking at the text, he is, he's the grunt soldier. Othello, when he's talking to him near the beginning, he's just like, go fetch my coffers, do these things. He's bitter because Othello was supposed to be his ally and he promoted Cassio over him. And I, I found that rather than lacking emotion, Iago was filled with emotion. Does and that mean
5: like he, maybe he's Damar? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah,
3: they're, they're definitely an element, and I mean, I felt, I was so grateful that I had worked on Iago before I did Laurel. I think that there's a lot of differences between them, but there was a certain um, a quality of survival. This is, this is someone who's learned how to survive in a certain way. Um, but I have great empathy for Iago, and I felt, if anything, he's more of a coward because he kind of disappears in the middle of the play. After, after the scene where he really sees Othello overcome with this madness, it's so, it, the scenes are basically Othello with Desdemona, da, 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 and Iago, I felt, it wasn't like, "haha, let me watch my machinations unfold. It was like, oh, my God, I made this happen, and I'm not going to own up to it. Like, if it were me, I would go, like, hey, guys, sorry. I just spun a bunch of lies. Like, this, nobody's cheating on anyone. It's totally fine. Um, <laughs> You're just too honest. I'm too honest. <laughs> but, uh, but I felt that um, it, that's the tragedy for him, that that was the journey for me, because I didn't want to just be, like, cold the whole time. And for me, I even, try, I even had the theory that Iago tries to manipulate the situation that he suggests, because Othello says, I'll kill her with poison, and Iago says, I'll kill her not with poison, strangle her in her bed. And it's almost like he's like, give me a second to try and make it so that someone will catch you trying to strangle her so she mo- maybe there's a chance that she trying won't die. Trying to save her life, actually. Yeah. Oh. So, and then, but of course it's too late. But so, and because she tells Amelia, I mean, she, he tells Amelia, go check on Othello, like, there's, there. There's a lot in that journey, so I think that uh, there's a reason that Iago is a character that we are extremely fascinated by, and I really appreciate it when he's not played in a one-dimensional, unfeeling way.
2: (laughs) Okay, last question. Yeah, this is for Mary. First of all, excellent panel, ladies. Thank you very much. Thank you. know uh, you how, when you're performing Shakespeare, part of the genius is there are many ways you can play the lines. You can be adherent to the poetry, mm-hmm. or you can play them for meaning, and you usually can tell that when you're giving the performance live.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because you can feel the audience relax when you've found that spot. Mm-hmm. But in your case, you're doing it in a box,
1: in essence. You don't have a live audience in front oh, of you, yeah, do you? The yeah. And if, if, if that's the case, how do you feel your way through... The lines, or mm-hmm. do you? Because de- I assume you're not depending upon the subtitles. I mean,
3: right, right. So specifically in in doing the Klingon, yeah. you're saying, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I do tell the story when we filmed episode four, because that was obviously the the most amount of Klingon in one episode. Um, that I, yeah, <laughs> uh, it was a doozy. But um, what I found particularly in the intimate scenes between Laurel and Vogue, was that. Uh, no one on the crew spoke Klingon. They didn't have the subtitles in front of them, even if they had. You know, they, we have the side by side translation. But the, the first scene that we filmed, that was just the two of us, was when I convinced him to go over, the, over to the Shenzhou And um, Tunde, our brilliant director, he's our producing director. Um, he, <laughs> he whispered in my ear. He's like, "I know it says you're, you're like, convincing him, but I think you're kind of flirting with him." He was like, make it and make it a little sexy. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and and what was funny was, we I had just in the first two episodes you can't really see it, but I had man cling on hands, um, and uh, they were very big. And uh, if Laurel had an insecurity, it was that. But um, <coughs> is, it, is hands, it just a glove? It was yeah. They they it was just they needed the, anyway. But by the fourth episode, I got lady lady cling on hands. And the f- when I first put them on, I was like, ah. Oh my god I can move them and we had the casual Klingon outfit so we could move our arms so my first instinct when someone says flirt and and all that stuff was I was like I'm putting my hand on his chest and so that's exactly what happened like in that scene I kind of put it on there and then Vokes all like ooh, and then like um and I remember uh Hugo Villasenor who's one of our prosthetic artists uh, between a take, he's like touching me up. He's like, "Are you guys gonna kiss?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so cool to see that the crew was responding to this relationship that was building, and they didn't have to know what any of the words. And then when we did the dilithium processor scene, which is what I call it, which is funny, like it's the most like <laughs> romantic scene I have, and it's like, yeah, the dilithium processor scene. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. Classic track. Um, but I did find that that was the last scene that we filmed for that episode, and the whole crew was kind of there. We all also knew at that point that he was about to go go off and, you know. So it was this last kind of lovely moment between us, and I remember everyone was like, yeah, go Vulcan Laurel, even though, oh, man. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was cool that we really... Um, But it took all, like with Shakespeare, it took all of that discipline and the drilling and the drilling and Shazad and I would get together and run those lines over and over again. We'd do it in English, then we'd do it in Klingon again. Then we would do the back translations because we have word-for-word translations so we would read the sentence in English backwards, then we'd read you know, so it's all that hard hard stuff that feels clunky in the middle and then it pieces together and then you're finally there in the prosthetic in the, and uh but that is, I, I will always treasure that episode, because that was when I felt we really found who these characters were. Um, and then it was all, the rest is story. <laughs> Silence.
1: Thank you.
2: Just to end up, we will just kind of say briefly where you can contact people. So I will finish by, uh, I will start by saying, I'm running the costume repair booth. So if you want to contact me, just come over to Garrick's. If you have, I'll, I'll fix your broken costume dreams. Where, oh where are yeah. you located
5: so, as Garrick's?
2: Oh, garricks it's in the vendor's room. Go in, turn left, go all the way to the corner. Can't miss us. That's so um, yeah. so <laughs> that's, that's me. I'm great. Um,
3: and yes. um, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mary the Chief because my last name's Chifo. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's all. And you can watch season two of Star Trek Discovery at the, <laughs> at the uh, early t- 2019 on CBS All Access.
5: <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Instagram as LightStar1013, and you can also like my blog, Shoes and Starships, on Facebook. Fake book. Fake book. I'm only going to call it that now. (laughs) Fake book. Um, I'm Pixie Dane most places
4: and uh, Manic Pixie Dane on Twitter. Um, And you can go to my uh, web portal at ManicPixieDust.com. You can find me on
0: Twitter at BonecrusherJank or hear me complain on Women at Warp. You can also find me on the floor of the eye bar.
2: Live long and prosper. Thank Opera. you. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thank you.
4: This is Annika, uh, representing Women at Warp at Star Trek Las Vegas. And I'm here with Nicole DeBoer, who played Ezri Dax in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Are you enjoying your convention? I am. It's always a pleasure to be here in Vegas. This is my first time, so I'm pretty excited. Oh, really? It is, well, yes. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Deep Space Nine is a wonderful series that I absolutely love, but I never but. related <laughs> to any of the characters until Ezra Really? Like that was the character that I was like, oh, finally, I am in this show. So, wh- what age were you when you were watching? This show? Um, I was like maybe 12 when it started. I so yeah. I was I was a, I was coming of age, yeah. quote unquote, and I just. Um, and what in what way? Why did you relate to Ezri? Um, okay, so. I felt like everybody in the cast, all, you know, all of the characters were fully formed. That's right, yes. Whereas yes. Esri was still finding herself. Yeah. And I really responded to that, and so I was really excited when it came in. So, you know, she's my favorite on on D Space Nine because it was like, oh, look, it's
6: me. I I get it. That's interesting. I mean, I assume because, you know, I would just assume that they were all fully formed. But I didn't know, you know, coming into the show and on on the last season if that was the case. And there's Nog and I didn't know what his deal was because I hadn't watched the show, you know. (laughs) But you're right, it was later on I realized that I was the only character kind of like that. And that is what made her, you know, special. And I mean, and some people didn't like that. And, <laughs> I, and then I was kind of like, on, you know and I'm the only one that's kind of like that, you know. It's okay to have someone who's uh, struggling to figure it out. Because it, it I enjoyed that arc, you know, and that storyline um, and I identify with I think a lot of people can identify with that kind of situation at some point in their life. you know what I mean?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, fun fact, the Dax symbiote was born in the year 2018. So Wait a minute. <laughs> that's, really? That's now, yes? Oh, my gosh, I just not so know that. Know that's how that old is your character so was. Cool. Um, wow! But yeah, so uh, happy birthday! Oh <laughs> gosh, why don't we have a banner for uh, that? This right? Is it, it should have it, a banner. It definitely should have been like a big thing. I, I, or waiting. I should have it here on the table, <laughs> like, right? Like I should have had somebody make me one that I could <laughs> stick on the table. Oh, that's too funny. Yeah, so it's. Um, but I think that it's uh, like the reason that the Dax character is so. Interesting Interesting is because there's so much history. There's so many different lives. That's right. Um, and like, how did you in, in, incorporate mm-hmm. each of the other Daxes mm-hmm. the previous
6: ones? Like well, I guess you know that was in the writing, really, and yeah. I just mostly focused on you know the relationships with the people you know on the station that I was that I was coming back to.
0: Uh, you Wharf,
6: know, and you know everybody who had a relationship with Jadzia and, and and with Cisco, of course. So I was more just focused on that, as a, you know. And then as each as each individual episode came up where we were going to explore a character, then I would get more deeply into that. Um, but it was really about. And, you know, I was bringing it up at the panel the other day, how as time has gone by and I've gotten fan mail from different people saying that Esri really helped them because they were going through a hard time or they were having trouble fitting in somewhere or they just were feeling awkward in life or, you know, and and watching Esri really made them feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, And then later the mail became, um, you know, mail from... from, uh, Hi, sorry. Um, One second, one second. Um... You know people who identify who are trans or identify as non-binary and then i was thinking oh my gosh i, I mean i thought about that i thought about like the, the homosexual aspect of it or whatever but i never really thought about it as a transitioning or that that would seem so wonderful to someone like why can't i get a life where i'm a guy or a life where, where i'm a girl like what does it matter you know yeah. what i mean and that really makes a lot of sense to me now too um but at the time, and the, you know, I think that that is something now, if we could do it again, I would like to explore more. I mean, they did explore um, and rejoined the fact of like, you know, she had been a man before, and now you have know, touched on like, I guess homosexuality, but really it makes you realize that it doesn't that matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter. <laughs> what is gender really? And will there even be gender one day? I don't even know. Um, yeah, so yeah, mostly I, I just focused on the actual r- relationships um, with the rest of the characters on the show, and then, you know, it was cool to go and explore Duran, with, you know, I brought him out, and that was a fun episode to yeah. do.
4: Yeah. I, finally, I am doing a uh, capstone project for my master's thesis on post-traumatic stress and yeah. uh, Star Trek. Oh, yes. And I'm uh, calling it from Elizabeth Daner to Katrina Cornwell. Mm. And in between them is uh, Deanna Troy and then Esri Dax. And so I just want want to thank you (laughs) for being a part of that. And and, uh, I really think that having counselors involved is important. Um, And I just didn't know if you had any thoughts about uh, representing that side of, of the Star Trek within Oh, well,
6: definitely. First of all, for me, I think um, I'm very interested. I love to see the stigma being taken off of mental health. You know, first of all, I think it's such a huge issue uh, right now. I mean, all over the world. And from PTSD to any kind of mental health issues and stigma, we want to get rid of it because, you know, we all have, first of all, when do you, when you open up to someone and say, oh, I've had anxiety, or I've had, you know, and then they go, oh my gosh, so have I, or, you know, there's all this shame with having these feelings, or really, really getting hard, maybe tr- having trouble getting out of bed one day, or you know, or for a week or whatever, you know, and so I'm really interested in all of that, and I was always kind of interested in the idea of being a, a therapist or a counselor, so I love sure that Esra yeah, was a counselor, although, you know, she needed some counseling <laughs> herself, heal thyself, doctor heal thyself, but, um, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very honored to, to be in that sort of, you know, position as that character, of course, yeah. yes.
3: Thank
4: you for uh, speaking with me. and You had a lot of good insights. Is there anything you would like to promote? Um, Oh, I am on a show right now called Private Eyes
6: and it shoots in my hometown, Toronto, as well as some other show we know of that shoots in Toronto that I'm trying to get on. and, yeah, it uh, stars Jason Priestley and Cindy Sampson. She was in Supernatural, and they're um, a couple of uh, private eyes. You know, it's sort of in the vein of Moonlighting or a Castle um, or, you know, some of the great, like, Remington Steele. It's light fair. It's fun. It's light. They solve a crime, and they got their little jabs in, and it's will they or won't they get together and all that kind of stuff. And it's really cute. And I play Jason Priestley's ex-wife and I kind of stir up some trouble and it's a bit of comedy which I enjoy. So Private Eyes, it's on on ION Network and um, it's on Amazon Prime now too and, and iTunes as well. We're in our third season so it's pretty fun.
0: Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, you are with Grace and I'm coming to you from Star Trek Las Vegas and I have a very special guest with me today, can you introduce yourself for our listeners?
1: Sure, Uh, I'm JK Woodward, Um, probably most recently the work you'd be familiar with is uh, The Mirror Broken, the uh, TNG Mirror Universe.
0: Which the internet has been freaking out about for one thing, (laughs) I know at least a few of our listeners definitely when they first saw that Picard artwork were freaking out over his gun size alone, man. (laughs) Can you tell us about the decision to make him super ripped?
1: Oh, uh, sure. Well, well, you know, actually Patrick Stewart's kind of ripped anyways. Fair, uh, fair. Um, if you look at him at the end of, uh, I think it was an Insurrection or, what was it? No, First Contact, where yeah. he's like climbing the sleeve. Of- so uh, I just kind of... Action
0: p- Picard. Yeah, that was
1: Action Picard. I just kind of built on that. Um, I figured in the, the Mirror Universe, um, they're going to be a militant society, so they would all probably work out. Um, except for Jellico, who we made like a scrawny-armed little pipsqueak. But
0: <laughs> you can use stronger words if you want to. <laughs> All right, so um, you were saying that you got to do, a, um, you did the character designing for these mirror universe versions of these characters we already know. Can you tell us about what that process was like? It must have been really tricky to take these characters that we all kind of have established and know and love and then kind of flip them on their head.
1: Yeah, um, and the, the thing that's tricky with the mirror universe is you, you, you're tempted to just make them opposites, but you, you can't make them opposites. They have to be the same characters with a different point of view. Uh, So it's almost a nature versus nurture kind of thing, like what would happen if they were nurtured differently? So Picard still has that kind of keen mind, but it's more analytical, it's more tactical, it's more about war. Um, But as far as the look goes, I just wanted to make them all look kind of bigger and meaner and a little more scarred up. Uh, And the idea when you're designing a look for something is you want to do, um, with Mirror Universe, you want to find a way to give everybody an eye patch. and that's. And that's why Data has like the Borg parts. That's how uh, Riker has the scar on the that side.
0: Explains a lot.
1: Anything to give it like that anti-symmetry. Uh, <laughs> makes it look more piratey, less uniform. Right. You know. uh, but originally, this was done for uh, not for a comic. This was done for a product style guide for CBS, because they were doing a Mirror Universe style guide, but there was no Mirror Universe characters for TNG. So that's what started the whole Aww. thing. But we were having so much fun with it. We were like, we got to do a comic, and here we are.
0: Well, hey, if you if you've got the whole thing put together and if you've got an idea, why not?
1: Right. It would it would be a waste. We have to tell these stories. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just have these characters and no story behind them. You know?
0: Is there any character changeover that you're especially proud of?
1: I like what we did. Um, I like what we did with Deanna. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that uh, she. I mean, she's not nice, but she does have a little more um, a little more to do, and she's a little less wishy-washy. I would have liked to have done more with Crusher because when I created the character, I was thinking of this twisted Dr. Mengele type of, you know, that's just, but again, that's getting a little too opposite. But, uh, but I, I kind of hoped we'd do more with her as I kind of hoped we could do more with her in uh, in the actual series, which they always kind of wasted that character. I think I like what we did with Jordy, though. I like the idea of Jordy's almost like Riker. Mm-hmm. He's a player. People love him. He's a party guy. He's happy. He's not nerdy. He's the opposite of the actual Jordy. He gets dates. He lands the deal. He's so this uh, is
0: really the better timeline for him, isn't it?
1: It really is. It really is. But he spends the whole uh, Mirror Broken hanging out with uh, with drunk what's her name. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> What is her name? The, the character, uh, Brahms. Yeah. Leah Brahms. Yeah. In this, she's just drunk. Every, every time I get the script, I would laugh at, when I look at her dialogue, because they would write in, like, drunk speak.
0: <laughs> oh, my God, that has to have been so fun. Um, I also want to say one of my other favorite reactions that I saw break out online to this series was the reveal of what Wesley Crusher was going to look like. People kind of lost their minds over that. Do you have anything you want to say about it? Um...
1: I had a lot of fun with that because I. I bet. I, uh, you uh, look like I you
0: had a lot of fun with
1: it. I'm an old punk rocker, so I wanted to look like he was like a Clash fan or something. So like I just made sci-fi clothing, but like I put little metal things that looked like it could be pins. <laughs> you know, I gave him the spiked hair. I gave him the, like the bondage belt and everything. Will Wheaton is Sid Vicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I, I actually modeled the hair after Johnny Rotten. I yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah. I love it. Um, but. It, uh, the, Got mixed responses from people. A lot of people said that uh, they thought I got the likeness wrong. It looked too much like Seth Green. I'm <laughs> like, it's just the hair. It still looks like Will Wheaton. But um, later, though, we, we kind of cleaned him up when um, when he was done pretending there was something wrong with him and he, he could, like, actually kind of come out as the genius he is mm-hmm. And because Picard saw right through it. And so then we gave him his haircut and gave him a uniform. And we, had, we actually had that great line, I think, that Scott Tipton wrote. there's like, no one's going on my bridge wearing a sweater. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how is it working with Scott Tipton?
1: Oh, it's great. We've been working together. Uh, Scott and Dave and I have been working together since, I guess, around 2006 when we did the uh, crossover, the Star Trek Doctor Who crossover. So we kind of have a shorthand after all this time. And mm-hmm. So it's, it's really easy to work with. Yeah.
0: And you've got this beautiful artistic style, um, which looks like it t- must take an awful lot of work. Um, for any of our listeners who aren't coming from an artistic background, can you tell us a little bit about what goes into that?
1: Oh uh, sure. Well, every
0: I know, vague question. I know.
1: <laughs> uh, it, well, like everything in comics, you start off with the layouts and kind of get those approved. Then you send the pencils, and then you, and then then I hand paint everything in gouache. Um, so for those that haven't seen my work, if you've probably seen Alex Ross's work, it's kind of that same style. Uh, it's painstakingly detailed. It takes forever. It takes like I said, twenty or thirty hours a page. I end up working like hundred twenty hours a week while I'm working on something to get to get it out. So on
0: you're something. a busy guy
1: yeah i don't sleep (laughs) (laughs)
0: now for any of our listeners who haven't checked out the series yet what would be your big selling point on it for them um well if they clearly have no taste and the concept alone hasn't spoken to them this is our last grasp for them those poor poor demented people
1: I think you just have to look at the cover for um, for the free comic book day issue when you see them all sitting on the bridge. I think that's what sold it to everybody. It's just a very visually different version of these characters and it's a lot of fun to kind of take these take characters you're familiar with and kind of take them out of their skin a little bit and, and play with them and do different things with them. So I think I think if you enjoy that kind of thing, and I think most people do, I think that's one of the reasons the Mirror Universe is so popular and why it's kind of coming back with Discovery. Um, yeah, I think if you like that kind of thing, you'll really enjoy this.
0: All right. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Do you have any upcoming projects you'd
1: like to give us a quick plug for? Uh, nothing that I can announce just yet. Oh,
0: exciting! (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And uh, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, J.K. Woodward on Twitter. J.K. underscore Woodward. Uh, James Kenneth Woodward on Facebook. Uh, I have a a like page, uh, The Art of J.K. Woodward, on Facebook. Uh, Instagram. J.K. underscore Woodward. You see a pattern?
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I think I can suss it out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us, and you have a great rest of the con. Thank you. If you'd like to contact Women at Warp, you can email us at crew at, women at or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Women at Warp. For more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash women at Warp or by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts.